this film was really about me trying to heal my broken heart mm. about so many things and of course the byproduct of of my own journey is that we get to invite other people on the journey it is very much about us as south africans yeah. and what we've gone through where we are how we feel about ourselves but also all this incredible knowledge and incredible inheritance that we have within this idea of ubuntu and isin yeah. and how it is incumbent on us to really study what is that thing so that we don't forget it so that we don't lose it This is the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host Refilwe Mpakanyane. Powered by I2 Art Insurum, season 1 of the Latitudes podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment, or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. This episode's guest is award-winning writer Milisutando Bongela. Milisutando's career began in fashion. However, her creative spirit has carried her into music, art, media, and now film. She's written and directed her debut film, the self-titled Milisutando. The artfully edited and scored documentary is a personal essay which spans 30 years and was 8 years in the making. The film is written as a portrait of the filmmaker and her country of birth, South Africa, as they both grow up in parallel in the aftermath of apartheid. It features an amazing cast of family, friends, some foes, and historical figures. The film received its international debut at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival in the World Cinema Documentary Competition, and Milisutando is also an inaugural figure of the 2020 Adobe Women at Sundance Fellowship. Milisutando has been in the creative arts going on two decades. So naturally, the film is a large focus of our conversation, but we do look at the entirety of her journey and how personal, familial, as well as historical contexts have informed her life's trajectory as well as shaped her outlook. Milisutando is generous with her insights and her frankness about her creative and intellectual journey is refreshing and disarming. Let's get into it. Oh, Melissa Tando Bongela, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Latitudes podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to jump on with us. Thank you so much for the invitation to you, Rafilwe and um Lucy. Yeah. So of course, I've just introduced you as Melissa Melissa Tando and over the years, it's been almost two de- almost two decades, right? Of being in the same orbit in media and I've always addressed you as Millie as did many people that I know so if you'll indulge me and allow me yes. the pleasure of continuing <laughs> to do so <laughs> yes that's fine all right fantastic sure where to begin Millie with someone who and I must readily readily admit to having admired your work 
your composure. You seem to me from afar to always have been an individual who is definitely chasing her creative yen, her creative impetus, whatever it was at the time. Can you confirm that and say, yes, I absolutely always have been grounded and perhaps confident in my creative expressions over the years? <laughs> no, I cannot say that I've always been confident and grounded at all. Uh, <laughs> no, not at all. I think, um, yeah, the word chase is quite apt, actually. Um, it's always been a frenetic energy of looking for something in the ether, something to express something. So if you imagine an inner ether and an outer ether, um, uh, you know, trying to break or dissolve the borders between, you know, what exists inside of myself and all that I contain, which is not singular, it's not me only, it's a, an ancestral lineage, it's many ancestral lineages. Um, and then towards the outside, um, it's taken me a very, very, very long time to uh, call myself an artist, to believe that I'm an artist and to walk around the world with a, the kind of confidence that I know now about what I'm here to do and what I'm here to say. Um, but before that, I think the mental fog and confusion and insecurity of any general artist has always been there. And then coupled with the fact that uh, we grew up in, a, in, a, in the time of South Africa where there was so much novelty um, mm -hmm. So many new experiences. Our, our transition was very real. And I think our, our generation, and I include you, um, we really were at the forefront of like metabolizing everything that, that happened or, or, or it being metabolized through our bodies as little children. And so um, on one hand, while that was a great, great step forward um, for the entire country and in fact the world, um, there was something that we, uh, the price that we had to pay as the people who were the first to, to enter into difference um, at it and, and into integration, essentially racial integration. Um, and for me, the cost was, was, you know, always this profound self-doubt and a profound sense of not being good enough. And I know mm. that a lot of people identify with that, but I think that it was particularly sharp for me because I didn't come from a background in which that was ever a thing. I grew up in a home in which my natural talents and intelligence were, were just there and encouraged and not even a big deal, not even spoken about. Just I was that just that child who would do her own thing. And it wasn't I never felt any sense of inferiority. I never sense any felt any sense of not belonging or you know, uh, difficulty about being in the world. I was kind of like, a, I felt whole. And the that began to, to sharply change and decline the more I was introduced into a space where you have to learn another language, another way of being, another way of walking, literally another way of sitting down. We had to learn how to cross our legs when we had been sitting with our legs be underneath our knees, um, yeah. underneath our thighs as children and, and other forms of posture. Um, and so it, I think it's in that encounter and that prolonged, um, sustained uh, presence in a, in a space that, that does not necessarily 
want you there. It's tolerating your presence there, but it doesn't necessarily want you there. And in, in your, your ability and capacity to stay requires you to change. And so I think lots of parts of me got lost in that process. And I'm not speaking for myself. There are many of us. A lot of my work is about uncovering this, um, <clears throat> the, the gains and the losses of that period. And so there, were, there was never a time in which I would have thought that I, I qualified to be an artist or that I'm intelligent, to be perfectly honest, um, mm. uh, according to my, my childhood and my teen years. And it took a lot of undoing. And, and I think... Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I'm saying apply to general artists and creative people in general, but I but I also want to specify that within the South African context at the time of us, I was born in the mid-80s and um, came up uh, as a kid, you know, in 94, I was nine years old. And so um, those formative years had done something, especially in the trans guy, like in a, in a context outside of like the South Africa that we all know and understand. Yeah. Um, and And... But I've always had, you know, I got my diary when I was eight, my first diary, my first journal when I was eight years old. And I have no idea why my parents gave me that. I think it's because I asked a lot of questions, but I've been writing and expressing things and thoughts and making observations since I was a child. Yeah. And it's not something that you have ever, you're actually aware of. You just, it's just the thing that you do. You know, it's just like a child who likes to, you know, bend their body and do to certain dance moves. It's just the way that the body moves. And so, um, the awareness and the consciousness about, you know, being somebody who has to express things came very, very late. I think I was 29 when I was like, oh my God, I'm a person and I can say things and I've got platforms and, but what is it that I have to say? What is it that I want to say? There's obviously a very big disjuncture or disjoint between what you've just said and how I've perceived you all these years. It seemed as though self-doubt or the real understanding of self-doubt was not something that you did or that you let keep you back. And so I guess I'm saying all of this to say that life is one hell of a funny thing and how we perceive ourselves and understand ourselves is mind-blowing when mm -hmm. you get the perspective of another around who they think you are. Exactly. No? Yeah, and I think that for me... I'm not always aware of how people perceive me. I'm not always aware of what they think when they when I enter into a room. I know that I, I hold quite delicately the balance between my confidence and my ability to really embody myself um, with the other side, the shadow side, you know, yeah. I think like most people. And I think that is what it means to be human. I don't know if anyone can fully live in either, um, either you know, side. And I think being an artist especially is a... Um, lifelong process of enlightenment and of like encounter encountering your own ignorance. Um, and and the, and the all the feelings that come with that. Oh my gosh, I don't know that thing. Um, for me, are that I, I want to get as deep as possible. Let's zoom in as deeply as possible as we can, so that we can keep ignorance away, so that we yeah. may touch knowledge um and that has its ebbs and flows that goes you know up, up and down on one day i might be like oh my god i'm so confident and the next day i might be stopped in my tracks by or humbled actually by my inability to understand something 
Before we obviously talk about Melissa Tando, the film and that journey and the amazing final product. Uh, but of course, I, I don't think the journey is anywhere near its end or its culmination, of course. What did those periods in your life lend you? What mm. did that period, for instance, being the arts editor at the Mailing Guardian South Africa do for you? That period of being a blogger, when blogging was a thing and it was new and mm. social media, as we know it now, was not even a twinkle in Mark Zuckerberg's eye, right? What did that period of being in the fashion world and having that as a creative outlet do for you as well? And what did the period of deciding, you know what, I'm actually going to go natural and shave it all off and then have a bowl cut <laughs> with my teeny weeny afro and all those various <laughs> iterations that you went through and blogged about what did all those things give to you and give to the Melissa Tando that we know now in 2023? That's a beautiful question, Rafila. Um, and I think I need a bit of time to think about it. But when I think back to my blogging days, God, it was so fun. I really, yeah. I really enjoyed that time of my life. I was 22, 23. I would wear the shortest, shortest shorts and skirts <laughs> and crop tops around town. You know, when you have that 22 year old body and it's cute and you're yes. just like, I don't care, yes. young. And I've got friends and I'm moved to Joburg and I'm just discovering this place. And what I really loved about Johannesburg at the time, which had not occurred to me as somebody who grew up in East London, was just I'd never encountered such diverse and confident blackness. I just, I was like, wow, this place. Yes. And I mean, it's down to something as benign when I feel as like, I used to, so I grew up in East London and then I lived in Cape Town for two years. And then I came to Joburg in 2008. And I think I was 21 or yeah, 21 or 22. And I remember going to a restaurant in Newtown um, called uh, Sophia Town. And being like, what? Oh my God, black people at restaurants alone, fly, cute, amazing food, huge built pictures of Maria Makeba everywhere. The restaurant is black owned, like that. And I used to see these black girls driving Audis and Mercedes. And that, as a 22 year old girl from East London, yeah. was a complete like eye opener because yeah. you didn't have many of us as we do today. Today it's normal. Yeah. Back, back then, you didn't have many young girls just driving, first of all, themselves in, in cars that they owned and let alone sitting in restaurants. So the, there was this eye-opening, you know, multi-sensory experience of being in this town where there was the noises and the cars and the fashion, of course. And I, I was like, I have to capture this. I'm the kind of person, I, I don't, this doesn't deserve to just be in my little journal. And I think my blog came it. out of, it was an extension of, of that curiosity and the way of seeing the world. And I remember I had won a prize to go to New York um, for Sunlam, from, from a Sunlam Journalism Award. Yeah. And that's why I started my blog, but I'd kind of always been, I was always poised for it you know yeah. um it's just when the thing came I was like oh this is the exact platform and so that period of my life was utterly fun I was living with my best friend in Ilobo in his flat and we were really living our sex in the city 20s hey like just doing the things and so and capturing all those aspects of my life whether it was about starting the shop and or you know trying new brands and and really 
um, learning how to, how this, what would become influencing, you know, how this whole thing works. Uh, this is way yeah. before the word happened. And um, mm. it was just a space to express who I am. And I was completely shocked that anyone thought I was cool or interested or like wanted to follow me or whatever. So I was, it was that blissful unawareness of being young and in your 20s. So that period gave me a lot of fun. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, confidence in, in that, in that spirit of, of youth. And I think the next period that you mentioned was the writing in the, I mean, the writing in the newspaper. Um, mm. that was the first time I, 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 I understood that I have a voice. I used to write for the Mail and Guardian and, and, the and the city press, I used to write a weekly column, which well, I was trepidatious about it. Every week I pressed send, it, there was trepidation because yeah. uh, looking back, I'm not proud of everything I said and everything I wrote. There were some articles where I'm like, you I, I wouldn't want to, I don't believe in this, I've changed my mind about these certain things. However, um, the idea of having a voice um, was is was instrumental in then shaping who I would become much later. So practicing how to speak in a public platform um, yeah. that that's a little bit more serious or a little bit, I had to have a different voice within the Mail and Guardian that I did have on my blog. They weren't too disparate, but I knew that I was speaking to a different audience in the newspaper and that it was on print versus digital. And so that kind of harnessed and honed my um the serious, the, the grown-up side of me, that the that my father's side. So my mom's side is like the I'm on the streets, I look cute, I'm fun, I'm I'm like <laughs> completely charismatic. You want me at your dinner party. Don't That's let your mother. mom hear hear you telling it the world that she's for she the She is my mother is ever. so charismatic. She's she's yeah. one of the she's so fun to be around also. And then my father's side is like he's much more you know, kind of a serious uh, scholar and, and thinks yeah. about things and, and wants to have intellectual conversations. And so I kind of, as I was growing older, I then, you know, transitioned into that newspaper space. First as a columnist, I wasn't working mm -hmm. fully for the newspaper. And then later on, I would then be the arts editor of the, of the newspaper. And, and that, that gave me, I mean, if the, if the, if the earlier years gave me a voice, it really, that gave me the power to understand what it means to have a voice mm. and how important it is to hold space for the things and to not devalue the things that me and my friends are going through, not to just keep them at our dinner tables and in our little brides or whatever, that wait a minute, we might all be having drinks and, and, and drinking champagne and whatever, but ultimately in within my generation, there, there are stories, there are experiences, there are perspectives, there are views that need to be heard. And it was such a privilege to work um, and to be given the, the time and the space, actually, by the editors of the, of the newspaper mm -hmm. to allow me to reshape the, the Maiden Guardian to to the conditions of the time, especially yeah. because it was around Fismas Fall. It was the beginning of Fismas Fall and, and it, was, it was after the death of Nelson Mandela and so as a country, we were also discovering ourselves and rediscovering ourselves without this paternal figure. And for me, it felt like the grown-ups had left the room. Um, it, it felt like the elders that we that I felt as a child, like you know, growing up in South Africa in the nineties. You have, it was first of all, it was it was completely incredible, and there was a sense that someone is running the show, that there are people making decisions, and that it's going to be fine. And I think not just not to not to say it was only on his shoulders. Obviously, there were you know networks of human beings who who have ensured. Um, the transition of our country. However, the, the, his death symbolically meant that, okay, we're now moving into a new phase. And that phase was to go back and to say, wait a minute, what happened in this country? And I think it, it was not, 
the, the people who expressed it perfectly were, were the generation of, of students who, who started Rose Must Fall and Fees Must Fall at the time. And it, me being the editor of the news, of the arts editor of the newspaper, of the Mail and Guardian at the time, kind of coalesced with that moment. And I knew that I couldn't just leave this as a lifestyle page. Yeah. Yes, of course, these are our lives, but also we have to have a, a, um, a, a home to that documents this moment that we will yeah. remember for a long time. And so it also raised me, you know, I also grew up as, as we were all straightening our backs to be like, okay, things are changing. I think that I, I feel very privileged that I was allowed to, and I mean, it wasn't easy to make those changes, of course. Mm, of um, course. There was definitely a lot of uh, backlash to some degree. However, um, the way I remember it, the way I think about it, yeah, it, it gave me, the the I, I was grown I was raised I was like it became, made me a grown up it made me really take seriously the various causes of of my generation, um, yeah. Responsibility that's the word yeah. I'm looking for responsibility yeah. yeah yeah. And of course, for those that don't know the media landscape the in South Africa, the two publications that we're talking about the Mail and Guardian and City Press are, of course, legacy uh, newspapers. And this was before the big shrinkage of print budgets and newsrooms, and, of course, before the big migration to digital. So it, it definitely was still part of that golden time. And, as you say, to grow up under those, those mastheads is, I think, a really beautiful thing. After the break, we continue our conversation... Don't miss out on Strauss & Co.'s upcoming auction, Curatorial Voices, African Landscapes Past and Present. Spanning 175 years of visual landscape painting on the African continent, the sale promises to be an extraordinary convergence of work celebrating pioneering modernists and trailblazing contemporary artists. Latitudes has curated a section of the auction presenting several works by exciting Pan-African artists. The auction opens on the 5th of February, with a live virtual auction taking place on the 19th. If you're in Cape Town, be sure to visit Strauss & Co.'s newly renovated space in Woodstock up until the 19th of February to see this concept come to life. Or you can visit www.straussart.co.za to register, browse and bid. You said something so pivotal and something that really resonates with me about after the death of Nelson Mandela, feeling as though the grown-ups had left the room. And what it meant was we were free and we were celebrating and we were chasing all these opportunities, but we also did abdicate. This is the national mood. We did abdicate our responsibilities of keeping watch politically You've set that up very nicely for our conversation about Melissa Tando, the film, which is exploring all these elements that you've just been talking about. I'm mm. going to ask you to do something probably very annoying that you've done a few times and that I could easily read off of the film website. But if you could just tell me what Melissa Tando, the film, is about for you in just the fewest words possible um, yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite question because it's very hard to answer. It's not the kind of film that I can and say. you can be as abstract as possible. Yeah, other three points. It, it's, 
Honestly, it's an act of self-reclamation, self-fetching. Ukuzilanda, mm-hmm. as me and my friends Asanda, Lusaseni, and Atambile Masola like to say, um, this act of, of fetching yourself from the place that you left yourselves. Um, and what does that journey look like? And for me, um, it's very much, I, I see myself as umtu more than I see myself as a person necessarily. And umtu is a particular kind of person. Mm. One who, who understands the relationship between one's spirit and one's physical life. Um, and the film is like a dual exploration, both in the spirit realm as well as the physical realm of um, what it means to become human in the context of race. How do we become human in, in, in a context where as you are crowning as a human being, somebody says, and now you are black and now you are yeah. white and now you are this. And so I'm trying to desegregate one's humanity from one's racial identity in the film by going back on my own life and asking where was I born and who am I essentially and being born in, in the homeland in the mid-80s um, inside a, a, another um, um, expression of apartheid or another perforation of apartheid um, mm. which which one we hardly look at in South Africa even though there are many of us who come from Transkei, Bukitazwana, Venda, Koko, all these uh, so-called homelands, and and that experience of blackness and being was was not the same as it was in um, the greater South Africa. And um, I, it was not easy to go into that history looking for alternative and unpopular um, versions of of selfhood, um, but. For, for many years I couldn't identify and I wanted to so badly identify with the struggles of my friends who grew up in Soweto being chased by um, the police and who understand tear gas and who really have that physical experience of apartheid. Like I grew up almost being like, but what's wrong with me? Why didn't, I don't remember these things that clearly as a child. Mm-hmm. I remember another version of life. And so it's me piecing together um, the trajectories of my existence. It's not a biographical film. It's more, it looks, it, it uses my biography to actually ask larger questions about our country, okay. our history, and these narratives and propaganda and what apartheid actually was, in my understanding, versus yeah. what we've been told that it is, versus what we are, we are taught that it is officially. And I'm also interested in the psyche and what it means, how, how does one become racialized? At which point do you become racialized, racialized as a, as a person? At which point does your mind accept and then um, be, start to behave in a way that accepts that, oh, yes, I'm white, and so I must be superior. I do believe that I'm better. When does that happen? What I'm looking at those intimate moments. And, and I also interview a lot of my friends in the film, um, especially my white friends, about their whiteness and what it means, because we are always talking about our blackness, and I hardly yeah. hear about people actually entering and facing and leaning into um, this, this, the fact that there isn't a cultural precedence for really talking about race in an honest way within white homes and white society. Um, it's always white liberals who are always mimicking and just saying the same things that black people are saying, but I'm looking for the literature. I mean, we're starting to have it, but at the time when I was beginning to research the film, there was a dearth of literature about, as well as just, you know, ways and modalities of engaging and talking about difference and, 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 and race. And of course, uh, this 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 idea that this this thing happens in in real time, but in very invisible ways. Um, 
and 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 it's also about it's it's also a quest for healing my broken heart. This this film was really about me trying to heal my broken heart, mm. um, about so many things. And of course, the byproduct of of my own journey is that we get to invite other people on the journey. It is very much about us as South Africans and yeah. what we've gone through, where we are, how we feel about ourselves, but also all this incredible knowledge and incredible inheritance that we have within this idea of Ubuntu and Isintu and how it is incumbent on us to really study what is that thing so that we don't forget it, so that we don't lose it. And I think right now um, it's kind of where some of us are are throwing it away out the window. It's cascading out of us kind of willfully because we, 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 we don't, I don't think we fully understand its depth, what it is and how for me, I don't think there's another way out of the conditions we see ourselves in besides um, facing and asking questions, what does that mean? And and reclaiming about Ubuntu to as Abantu. And so and then sharing that with the world. And so the film is essentially it's a public, you know, it's a it's a shared experience, an experiment of me looking for myself and asking, who am I? Out, outside of a navel gazing um you know, it's not, it's not, an, it's an, it's not a hopefully a navel gazing exercise. It's, it's quite invitational, actually, for, for each of us to, to say, in order to overcome these challenges, we have to go through them. And so with the film, I'm saying, let's hold hands and, and, and take the first step forward. Yeah. So, Millie, now that I've done the horrible thing of uh, making you speak <laughs> so eloquently about <laughs> your film, uh, it is not a navel gazing exercise by any means, by anyone's barometer. So we'll start off right there. Thank you very much. The opening graphics on the film read like this. Um, 28 July 2014, an unknown woman undresses in front of the statue of Nelson Mandela. And as soon as I saw those words, there are many statues of Nelson Mandela, by the way, but you called it the statue. And I was like, okay, this Mm -hmm. is obviously Nelson Mandela Square, which used to be Santon Square (laughs) in the richest square mile of Africa in Johannesburg and Santon. And it's a major upmarket retail destination and also a tourist destination. So you got to go there and you have to take a picture at that specific Mm. Mandela statue. And from there, we see this blurred out images, the video of this young woman standing with her head against, I guess, the leg of Nelson Mandela. And she seems to be appealing to him, maybe talking to him, maybe confronting him. And then eventually she puts on her clothes and there's a bit of, a, um, I guess, kerfuffle with more security. And then she trails off. She she leaves without being apprehended, if that's what they were trying to do. And the next graphics or words are, I cannot draw a straight line between this day and the questions it has raised in me over the last eight years. But just give me a sense of some of those questions that were triggered and what you initially wanted to do with those questions to having made the film as it is now. So Nelson Mandela died 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that woman went to Santon and did that act seven months later in July. And I think in those seven months, it's almost like a twilight zone. I don't really remember what happened between December where 
as a as a nation, as a world, as people, you know, we were experiencing this collective mauling and these questions um, mm. and these Facebook posts that were full of all manner of things. Um, I remember friends of mine posting, you know, very difficult questions about Mandela, almost as if like, okay, now that he's finally died, we can now ask about his culpability in, you know, the fact that South Africa has, did we sell out? You know, that's the first time I really, those those words kind of were freed from people's minds online. And um, by the time that this, this day occurred, um, I was caught between my deep love and admiration for Mandela and, and also this thing where I had to now face him and also ask questions and, and, I, and to allow the, the other side to enter, you know, the, the criti- criticism uh, as an adult to enter from my own self, not necessarily from what I'm hearing or seeing from other people. And when that day happened, I remember people writing quite like nasty things about her online and what she'd done. And I remember taking it very seriously because there's, she kind of looks like me, or I kind of look like her. Mm. Blurred image, she's got short hair, you know, the body shape is not very dissimilar. So I I don't know why I took it so personally, but I think it's got something to do with the fact that I didn't like the the fact that people were missing the much deeper thing that she was doing here. And that's kind of the day where I was like, oh my gosh, we're the adults. We're the grownups now. And what is it that we have to do with this country that we've inherited? What a, what is this country? Um, and, and who were these so-called heroes? Were they heroes? Um, does it is what does it mean to have heroes? Um, do we need them? Do we want them? Um, I was really haunted by the fact of being made politically conscious which happened in a very strange and banal way of just like literally wanting to go relax my hair and my friend saying, why are you relaxing your hair? And that was the beginning of 2014 for me is when I read Steve Beagle for the first time as an adult. There was a book that was in always at home in our home library that was there. And I, I must have read it. I write what I like, but I, I now picked up the book on my own as an adult and began to ask serious questions about my own relationship to blackness and to assess my life. Um, and I mean, I, I wasn't happy with what I'd found about my assessment and my own ability to understand who I am in this body and how it moves around the world. And so there was a lot of shame that I that I carried about kind of not knowing the full story of South Africa, formally speaking, mm-hmm. um, and not really engaging with blackness in the way that some people, some people that I know and most people um, having not grown up in a township, for instance, um, and having grown up in a homeland suburb and then to a, 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 a suburb in the new South Africa, um, th- those I had a lot of shame about the fact that was I black enough? And I mean, just to really reduce it, which is, it was questions like that. And, and then being like, but where did I grow up? What was this place? And then zooming out and understanding that the trans guy was a part of what was almost like a a foolproof it's, a, it's it was the pudding that was the pudding of apartheid um this idea of like let us prove this idea that race all the races should be separated and on one hand you know you have millions of people that are saying of course this is not legitimate this is not a thing but i when i come from a subsect of the society that was like well we don't have a choice and and or or this is the choice we're making we do have a choice mm. but this is the choice we're making towards this yeah. thing and and 
And there was also a lot of questioning about that uh, and my class privilege as a result of having grown up middle class in the trans guy with parents that carried briefcases to work and, and all that stuff. Um, and so uh, the, the, the overriding emotion that drove that period was shame. Um, but on the other side, there was a lot of curiosity about, wait a minute, what was the trans guy? What was home? What did my parents believe in? Who were these leaders? And, and ultimately, what was apartheid? Um, is it the thing that we think that it was? And what was it in the minds and the hearts of white people um, um, and, the, and the ruling party at the time? And I mean, I've always been a person who asks questions and I think it's a, it's a more difficult exercise and it's a more honorable exercise for me than to answer the, to try answer the questions. Yeah. But this, it was just like this endless pit of, of being curious about how did I get here and what am I in? What is this place? What is this space? Mm-hmm. And why have I come into the world as this dark brown skinned person who identifies as female and cisgendered and etc etc like why did i come in 1985 why didn't i come in 1932 and why didn't i go to copenhagen or or, or japan as the person that i would become and Mm -hmm. so i think the film is like a and this process has really just been a constellation of questions yeah and uh, and questions um, so beautifully and creatively and gently and sometimes irreverently asked, and you're using archive material. You're using family photographs, old family photographs. You are interviewing Umakulu, your grandmother. You're spending time with your aunts and capturing just the love, the warmth, the texture. is class are being spoken so freely and beautifully and lyrically. And the music is gorgeous. And of course, uh, Neo Muanga <laughs> is somewhere in there along with Umsaki. And I thought, okay, this is, this is a dream. You know, if <laughs> homelands were um, apartheid's pudding or um, the wish of apartheid, is that what you call you called it, apartheid's mm. wish, um, mm-hmm. in, in the film, then um, this culmination of all the resources you drew together to make Milusutando the film is an absolute dream. And I also really appreciate and really loved your use of, as you say, your own life, your family as well, to interrogate all of these questions, right? And I don't want to use strong words like culpability, but ultimately we could talk about leaning into and um, being part of building this wish for apartheid. But we can also talk about so many things inside and outside of the homelands. And Mm. what I find so refreshing and so beautiful was the willingness to have those conversations and to interrogate the humans mm. behind all those decisions. We are very, we are easily able to put labels and write things on the internet or to say Mandela was a sellout um, or to say the Truth and Reconciliation Commission failed, right? And we can say that validly, but we can also say things like 
what did it mean for our country to have experienced the kind of transition into democracy yeah. that it did? Um, yeah. And what was the cost? But how did we participate, all of us, in uh-huh. our own way? And how did we sign off on that, all of us, in uh-huh. our own way? Uh-huh. Were we watching SABC One and singing Simunye We Are One, all of us? Uh-huh. Were we singing sure. Vicky Sampson's <laughs> African Dream? You know what I mean? Were we... <laughs> there were all these things, dude. We were there. Yes. I mean, yes. I was, you know, we're, yeah. we're in primary school on the top school field singing... Um, what was... There was a particular democracy-bound, like, song. That South Africa, popular. we love you. South Africa, we love... <laughs> we were there. We were, make, we were all in information singing South Africa, we love you. Mm-hmm. And not demanding, you know justice, whatever that looks like, or demanding conversation at the very least, transparency at the very least, you know. So it's refreshing to see all of this and I find the bravery so very, very beautiful to um, to witness. We continue our conversation after the short break. Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. The delving into archive, the delving into um, literature and resources and texts that you hadn't seen before, how long did that process take? Mm -hmm. And I really do wonder how you meld all of that together with your narration, which is you talking Mm. about your own experiences, your own thoughts, your childhood, and sometimes the silence and sometimes the music is doing the work and sometimes the graphics and the archival um, footage is doing the work. And sometimes the videos are doing the work. And then sometimes your narration comes in and you're talking about how you would pest or how you got your first diary, as you said, at the age of eight, because you're pestering your dad about the meanings of certain things um, like sodomy, which is a word you saw in the Bible. Right. But those words are being overlaid on visuals of the death of Chris Arnie. 93. And mm-hmm. his burial, and those words, and you talking so lightly and irreverently about growing up, are also overlaid over all of that, knowing that at the time, the country was on like a cliffhanger, because at any moment, mm-hmm. everything was going to burn down, and people, we were all seriously worried. Even as children, we felt it about mm. civil war, because we Chris Honey is gone. Yeah. And yeah. something's got to give. It was tense. Mm. How did you make those editorial decisions to thread and piece the film together in such a way? Well, I mean, that particular scene is is exemplary, actually, of, 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 of the process and the approach that we took to editing and, and the form of the film. So the, the scene you're talking about of the two women who are kissing as, as they're moving away and saying goodbye to each other, that was a forced removal. That wasn't a... a, 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 a we're just 
And so for, but the thing is, that's the yeah. question. So these big political historical events don't always happen with like the drama of like the thunderous, okay, and now it's the forced removals. They happen in banal everyday mm-hmm. ways where they are the police in the background in their uniforms doing their thing and saying, you must move now. You're being moved out of your home into another. It doesn't always look like people, the resistance doesn't always look the same. I think we're used to particular forms of images and and that, that you know, permeate our imagination and make us think that resistance looks a particular way. Of course, there were people who resisted and fought back, but I, mo- I was more interested in, I mean, our whole film was very much like looking at what were, the women doing during apartheid what is who's the woman and where is she within the colonial project and so that's why there's a lot more images of women interacting with each other mothers with children um um women within the military black women and and, and how they were made to participate and they were forced into these positions of servitude um there's a scene where the women are being photographed and uh, they're like a, a line. They just like they sit, they yeah, get up, they yeah. sit, they get up, they sit, get up. That's from the 1950s where people were taking their pictures from from the dump bus. But you could extract that image, and it looks like they're just taking pictures for something. You don't you, but we in South Africa know what that means. And so we we knew that. I mean, I worked with an incredible um, team, by the way. My my editor Hank Lee. Um, as well as um, another associate editor, not an associate editor, but somebody who, a consulting editor, Ariel, Ariel Lalu, um, and, and as well as um, obviously big conversations with my producer um, at the time, Marion Isaacs. Um, the whole approach was to not be too on the nose, to not be didactic, to not say, you know, explain things to people. And, and it's not that we didn't try. You know, I took 10 years to make this film. And so there were many, the earlier versions of, of those scenes are me trying to explain in 1948, this is what apartheid is, blah, blah, blah. And we knew that this is not going to work. We need to actually reach people not by appealing to their intellect only. We need to reach people by appealing to their emotion and the power of cinema and the power of propaganda, which is what we're also commenting on, is that it takes the things that you care about and it has the ability to pervert them. So we all care about family, we all care about home, we all care about belonging, we all care about safety. And so it, it, it uses those things uh, uh, cinema and, and the way it was used in South Africa and you know in the colonial project is always used to to essentially purvey the meanings and the messages and the yes. ideas of the of, of empire and the colony and and you do this by you know reaching people touching them in the studios actually um, and that's <laughs> and I think we, we we knew that we we, we weren't going to get anywhere explaining and having dates because we, we it's not about that one particular event it's about how this is is relevant in all of the continents that exist in the world where, where empire has reached um the, the, they have all they've killed they killed lumumba they killed sankara they've killed many different you know resistance movements fighters around the world and so um we knew that we couldn't it, we we wanted to obviously specify South Africa, but how do we make that universal? How do we make somebody who has no idea who Krizani is, mm-hmm. but but and has no idea that somebody said somebody has died? But you see the the female soldier and 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 Dimpoani, you know that she's obviously burying somebody that she loves, and you see Nelson Mandela in the mm-hmm. background, and 
the, to lay that over with my childhood reflections and questions was intentional because that was what we were thinking in 1993 as a nine-year-old. I was, you know, interested, I was like crazy about Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone and, and Bubblegum. And, you know, we were in these schools and people were talking about this thing called anorexia nervosa. And we were, had these school diaries and the teachers were calling us sorties on one hand and on the other hand, like hugging us. And so the, 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 the it's very deliberate, this thing of, locating that perspective in the childhood, in childhood, because a lot of these reflections come from childhood. And we hardly hear of children's reflections and experiences of political, you know, uh, movements or resistance movements or these systems. It's always the adult reflections. And so I was like, wait a minute, as a child in 1993, I remember watching that funeral on TV. I remember the grown-ups crying. I remember feeling the fear, not really fully understanding what's happening, but feeling it. But at the same time, we were like, okay, what's playing on KTV? Like, can you guys, can you guys get out of the living room so that we can watch KTV? We can watch YoTV, you know? So it's, it's, it's the location of, this is the history that was happening, but as children, these were our concerns. And it was almost happening in the background. And I think a lot of times when we make films and we, re we remember history, we like to, 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 to position ourselves as if we were always in the know, as if we always fully understand the full picture. Our adult minds have the larger context, but our, our, our younger minds, don't always have the context and so you don't always know you don't always understand and so it was a it's a it's an effort to uh bring together obviously the the, the way that it's been edited is the adult yeah. self but the way that it's been written and exists as a tapestry it, that's a tapestry of of my childhood and the things that i was seeing and feeling you also see you know that T trc started in east london in 1996 um, in 1996, for me, was the year that the, our school choir went to Cape Town, which was the biggest deal of my life. And so, it, and it happened down the road, less than two kilometers from my school was the TRC. Did we know about this? No. We were concerned about singing Hava Nakila and like playing the marimba and stuff. In, in, and we knew that there was something that the grown-ups are going on and on about and something that they're attached to and taping. Why Why are they buying so many cassettes to tape this thing? <laughs> and so, but if, but you have a sense, you have a you have a sense of the, 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 the energy in the house that oh, there's something that's gone wrong. And if you're a curious child, you will ask, hey, who's so-and-so? And so it's almost like opening up a memory box. Um, this, this whole exercise, is, it's a memory box. And it asks of the, the same for the viewer. It's, this is not a film that's passive where you can go, okay, that happened to Millie. The entire way in which we edited the film and the fact that it doesn't have dates and it all feels like one huge, long kind of subconscious, like, you know, movement mm, a memory or a it, it is so that you as the it, it, so that you as the viewer can also think about you, what you were doing at that time can also be like oh i remember the song and i think it, that was the decisions we made to remove the the register of the film from the intellect even though obviously we are intelligent and we are intellectual in the in the reading of our history but to 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 really locate it within the emotion um, and that's why you don't have that many images that have to prove what apartheid was through violence. It was violent, but it was psychologic and psychic violence. It was psychological and spiritual violence too. In addition, I think that the physical violence is actually the last version of the expression, but the physical what pre what precedes the, the physical is an emotional violence and a spiritual and a psychological violence. And that is where the film is. That's where it lives. Um, and so it probes in in that in that register, and um, 
the, the contradictions that are offered by, you know, the child register and the adult register, the contradictions that are offered by the image and, and the, the something, the light thing that I'm saying, oh yeah, we went ice skating or whatever. Meanwhile, you know, this, this other huge event was taking place. I think that was us trying to achieve this this intention that we'd set for ourselves, that we have to operate within the emotional yeah. register. And as you say, this entire project is an invocation of so many things, of memory, of love, as you say, of unity, of repair, that work that needs to be done, mm-hmm. of healing oneself, whatever that journey looks like. And it's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly gratifying. Millie, I always end off our <laughs> Latitudes uh, podcast interviews with a question that I stole from Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Oh, yeah, wow. Okay. And I always ask people what they know for sure. Yes, I knew it was going to be that question. <laughs> of course, it had to be. <laughs> and today, Mili, um, it's got to be what do you know for sure about yourself? I know for sure that I am loved. <laughs> and the very last one, Melissa Tando Bongela, what do you know for sure about creativity? And it's for various mediums of expression, like your writing, like creating and directing a documentary and film. Well, I know for sure that I don't have a choice but to walk this particular path. This is not a job I'm ever going to quit. And it's not anything that I'm ever going to resign from. Um, And for me, I know for sure that this is the deepest privilege of being alive right now in this country at this time, as who I am and as who we are, there are so many people who have lived and died and done so much so that we may exist in this way, so that we can be free enough to pursue these creative uh, pursuits um, with their guidance and with their support and with their, almost like I feel, you know, at the end of making the film, I felt as if this is a resurrection of my ancestors, especially those who were artists and who couldn't practice their art fully in the way that I'm able to now. I feel very much like this was a collaboration with them. And um, it's like, I, I know I'll never ever have to ask what is my purpose. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafilwe Mpakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Media and a big thank you to the Latitudes team.